and welcome to Mostly Weather. In this episode, we will be looking at our mind and body's reaction to the elements. Are you under a cloud or walking on sunshine? How do the seasons affect our lives and can weather cheer you up or even make you ill? I'm Jeff Norwood-Brown and joining me today are podcast regulars, forecaster, broadcaster and expert mariner Penny Tranter, our walking Wikipedia of weather history knowledge, Catherine Ross, and innovator, communicator and meteorological mentor, Helen Roberts. So team, are we all under the weather or on cloud nine today? Cloud nine today. Oh, good for you, Helen. <laughs> so does anybody feel that the weather actually affects their mental state at all? Yeah, definitely. So how, uh, how so? Well, I like to see the sunshine at least once a day. At the current time, we've got plenty of anticyclonic gloom around cloud day after day after day under a huge area of high pressure. And what is frustrating as a meteorologist is that you know that cloud is only about 100 feet thick and that you just want something in the atmosphere to come along and punch a hole in it and we'll see some bright weather with some sunshine. Although, obviously, don't want it to be too hot. Yeah, this was one of the joys of when I used to work on the research aircraft because it was uh, always sunny at 35,000 feet, you know, and then uh, you'd sink slowly back down through the cloud and you'd think, ah, here we are, back to Earth again. Enjoy the rest of us in the gloom. Exactly. So, Helen, how do you feel about the weather? Does it affect you at all? Certainly a, a bit of sunshine puts a spring in my step and I think that's the case for many people and there's certainly been some research to show that that does tends to be the case. And of course, we've heard about seasonal affective disorder or SAD, as it is often known, whereby people can feel really down during the winter months. It tends to start around the beginning of autumn, continues through winter and then starts to ease when spring arrives. There's a couple of reasons behind it. The decreased levels of sunlight may disrupt your body's internal clock and also can reduce serotonin levels which affect mood. And so some of the symptoms can be low energy levels, oversleeping, low mood, changes in appetite and difficulty concentrating. Catherine, do you feel that you need the sun every day? I don't know about the sun every day, but yes, certainly I'm one of these people that finds when it's gloomy and you don't get enough light during the winter months, it gets you down a bit. So, yeah, I I think it's I don't necessarily need to see the sun every day, but when you get weeks of gloom, it definitely gets to you after a while. Um, I also find that actually the wind can have an effect. I know teachers will often say the kids go hyper in the wind in a classroom. Really? Yeah. I know my mum actually uh, gets very agitated in the wind, especially at night. She doesn't like hearing it rattling the tiles and what have you, you know. So uh, I'm completely the opposite. You see, I'm, I'm almost phobic about the sun. During the summer, I tend to retreat indoors and I don't mind a bit of gloom. It, uh, it suits me. I don't know whether it's because I've got Scandinavian origins and I don't need so much vitamin. Is it vitamin? What do we get? D. D, vitamin D. From, uh, yeah, from the sun. So, um, but yeah, it doesn't really affect me in that way. It's a good what job about... we're all different, Jeff, isn't it? It is a bit, isn't it? <laughs> and that's why I'm so pale as well. We've just finished the summer holidays as we record this for the school children. So how do you feel about the fact that we're heading into autumn? Does that affect you at all? How do you feel about heading into autumn? I love the autumn. It's my favourite season. I love the colours. I love the leaves. I love the cosy evenings and turning the fireplace on. Yeah, it's great. Haven't the Scandinavians got a word for that? I can never remember. They it. have. There's um, there's a word that has been 
increasingly popular over recent years, which is Huga, excuse my pronunciation. And there's a Norwegian equivalent. I was speaking to my Norwegian pal Pia, and she says that it's pronounced cozily, which is kind of the equivalent. Both mean that cozy feeling of being tucked up. Yeah. There was a really fascinating study by a student from the US who moved to Norway for a while. And in fact, it was a part of Norway where they have what's called polar nights that last all winter where the sun effectively doesn't rise for a number of months. And the results of the study pointed towards what was termed a winter mindset. So rather than thinking about winter as something to endure and get through, as we often do in the UK, it's about looking forward to all the positives, looking forward to things like the snow arriving in in Norway, the skiing season, the northern lights becoming much more likely and visible and those cosy evenings by the fire with a hot chocolate. You see, I'm going to go back on what I said now and a crisp autumn morning with clear blue skies is possibly Mm. one of my favourite types of weather. Did anybody make it to the coast at all this summer? Yes, absolutely actually went into the sea in Bristol Channel on a calm August day and it was actually very invigorating once I had actually got into the water it always takes me about five ten minutes to get over the shock of the chill of the water but it was very enjoyable having a swim and felt really quite reinvigorated once I came out and quite self-righteous about having done a little bit of physical exercise. Right okay so why is it that we um head for the coast do you think during the summer? I think that's maybe got a bit of history to it actually Jeff. I know we often sort of think that the school holidays are associated with the farming year or at least that's what I grew up with I don't know about anybody else but there was this kind of thing you know school holidays were built around the farming year and actually it turns out it's pretty much a complete myth. You know, really? East, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. I'm not the only one. So you know, Easter and October half term. OK, yeah, it kind of fits some of the lambing season in some bits of the UK and some bits of harvest, maybe. But six weeks of the summer holidays, it's pretty much totally useless. It's the growing season. There's nothing really to do in the fields. It's too early for the harvest. It's too late for the lambing and the calving. It's actually no good whatsoever. So, oh, and by the way, when the school system started to be introduced in the 1800s, we were increasingly mechanising farming anyway, so they didn't actually need children in the in the fields in that many parts of the UK. Obviously, some areas still did. So it turns out, actually, it's not so much that. It's actually all tied up with the Industrial Revolution. And that's because there was an outflowing of population from the rural areas into the cities. And then they would tend to, each town, particularly in the north and the Midlands, would have a different week off during the year. And they were pretty much all between June and September. So each town would have a different week off and they were called wakes weeks. It started off as a religious tradition, but it became quite secular quite quickly and just became an excuse for a holiday, basically. Steam trains had come along by this time as well. So you could actually get a lot further than you could ever get before very quickly and quite cheaply. And they put on special trains to take all the people from wakes weeks out to the coast. So the Lancashire working classes went to Blackpool. Southport took the slightly better off 
and the textile towns and those from Yorkshire used to go to Morecambe. And just to give you an example, so the rail link between Blackpool and Oldham was completed in 1846, that's Oldham in Manchester. And in 1860, more than 23,000 holidaymakers travelled on special trains for their wakes week from Oldham alone. So you can just imagine hundreds of thousands of people travelling out from the towns and the trains took them to the seaside. So they went to the seaside. But equally, the Victorians were also completely obsessed with the fact that the seaside was healthy. And it right. was good for you to swim in the sea and it was good for you to get the sea air. I guess it was considerably less dirty than the town air. So I get their point. So, Catherine, you mentioned uh, Morecambe, Blackpool and Southport there. And uh, growing up on Merseyside, I still see Southport as dead posh. And of course, they're all uh, facing the Irish Sea with the wind coming in from that direction. So I guess that's going to be sort of pollution free and pollen free as well. Is there, is there any evidence that bathing in the sea and taking the sea air is good for you? Well, I think it's got to be good for you, hasn't it, really? For the very reasons that you've just explained, it's got a cool, refreshing feel to it. So you're sat there in the sunshine, but you're not overheating either. So what's not to like? And also you've got the sand that you can play in. You've got the amusement arcades. So what's not to like is pretty much everything you mentioned there. The sunburn, <laughs> the sand, there's amusement arcades, you know. So no, it's um, it's never been for me, the uh, the seaside. But uh, I mean, you go sailing a lot, Penny. So is that the draw for you or is it the fresh air or combination of everything? I think it's really a combination. First of all, I love being outdoors. That's why I'm a meteorologist, I think. So you're out in the fresh air and that's good for you anyway. You know, that's been proven, you know, in terms of your well-being and also the exercise as well. So there's lots of pluses there. You're getting your vitamin D. You're also exercising yourself. You're taking yourself away from your work situation. So that's helping your mental well-being. You're also with other people as well. So you're socialising. So I wondered whether, Catherine, that might be one of the situations with the school holidays when they started out in the 1800s, whether it was also about socialising. Certainly, it's, it's got to be you know, a part of it, hasn't it, from being sort of regimented in the factory system, or all the collieries, you know, obviously being very noisy places, you know, and you didn't get breaks and more than you know, virtually nothing anyway. So it was an opportunity to, yeah, to actually you know, talk with your fellow man and get to know people. There is a little bit of science behind bathing in the sea out of interest. Apparently, the negative ions in sea air accelerate your ability to absorb oxygen, which balances your serotonin levels. And it allows you to feel more alert, relaxed and energised. Well, that's right. <laughs> I know that the Victorians were very keen on taking the ozone, weren't they? They, they felt that you could, you could go down to the seaside and uh, smell the ozone. And that was what was doing you good. But as far as I'm aware, ozone is not very good for you at all. And the actual smell was rotting seaweed, which smells remarkably like ozone, apparently, to those who know these things. So that's what they were actually smelling. So, uh, but it's there's interesting. There's a little bit of a risk, isn't there? A bit, of, I hate to be the bringer of bad news, but there's a bit of a hazard with going to the coast in hot weather, which is that the breeze can give you a sense of false security when it comes to putting the sun cream on. So it's much easier mm. to get burnt. 
You've and also, also got... because the sand can be reflective, water can be reflective. Exactly, so... yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if, even if you're wearing a hat, it's bouncing up at you, yep. the UV. So it's interesting, Catherine, that you said it'd be nice to get away from the noisy factories. So they chose Blackpool. I don't know whether you've been to Blackpool <laughs> in the summer, but it's not the quiet. It's fantastic. I have to say everyone should go there at least once in their lives. But, but Blackpool yeah, in 1846 it? may not have been quite the same as Blackpool now. <laughs> When it comes to weather affecting mood in other ways, there are some interesting studies that I've picked up on. One study found what's called a curvilinear relationship between temperature and mood. So what that means is that as temperature rises, mood tends to correlate with that up to a point, And that point seems to be around the 19 degrees Celsius mark. And then mood comes back down again as things get too hot. So 19 Celsius is about the optimum temperature for us humans, it seems. But it's not just as simple as that, as these things often aren't. And it's also correlated with the amount of time spent outdoors. So for that relationship to be valid, you need to spend at least 45 minutes outside. And if you're inside, the trend is actually completely reversed. So the higher the temperature, if you're stuck in, the more negative your mood is likely to be. And I guess that's for a number of reasons, potentially because you're feeling cooped up and um, wanting to get outside or perhaps because you're seeing everyone else outside enjoying the sunshine. So, but an interesting one that, but I think 19 degrees for the average person probably more like 12 for you Jeff is it it's uh, well I was thinking it's more the fact that I find it I, I don't mind being cold because you can always put another jumper on yes you know that's fine but we're not really geared up to hot weather in the UK are we so we don't have we're easy not. access to uh, air conditioning or anything like that that's right we've found it in the last few summers haven't we during extreme heat when temperatures that other nations seem to cope with very easily we're not so good at here and yeah it's because we're not used to it our homes are built to keep the heat in rather than let it out exactly yeah that's when I start to struggle is uh, especially at the nights as well trying to keep cool there I'm just going to go on to a little bit of studying that I did for this episode I was asked (laughs) I was asked uh, by producer Claire to look into uh, murder and migraine associated with the weather I'm going to touch on migraine to start with and is this actually caused by low pressure, as a lot of migraine sufferers will tell you. So when I'm talking about low pressure, I'm talking maybe a storm coming in. There is evidence out there that migraines are caused by a sudden drop in pressure, but it's anecdotal evidence, but there is an awful lot of anecdotal evidence out there. So I've done a little bit of maths here. So what we call cyclogenesis, that's the formation of a storm, the deepening of a low pressure. Rapid cyclogenesis is a reasonably rare uh, occurrence, but that's when the pressure will drop, say, 12 hectopascals in 12 hours. So one hectopascal per hour. Now, I've always been brought up to believe that a hectopascal is equivalent of going up 33 feet or somewhere around there anyway. So that would be the equivalent of going up 400 foot or 37 floors of a very tall building. But you could also go up and down 400 foot just driving around Devon. And you don't hear people complaining of migraines every time they go up a hill in Devon that's 400 foot. And let's face it, some of the motorway is at uh, sea level in the UK um, and and goes up to about 1,000 foot, uh, I think, over the Pennines. And you don't hear of many migraine sufferers saying, you know, or people with arthritis saying, I can't go to Leeds because my arthritis plays up when we go over the hills. So this is why I'm leaning towards, you know, 12 hectopascals in 12 hours, which is fairly spectacular for the weather. 
causing a migraine? I'm not so sure. Also, when you go into an aircraft and uh, it's a pressurized aircraft, it's not pressurized to ground level for all, all sorts of reasons. So that's you're actually when you're in an aircraft, you're at the equivalent of about 8000 feet. And again, you don't hear of people saying, oh, yeah, every time I go in a plane, I get a migraine. I don't know. Maybe these people avoid planes for that precise reason. I really don't know. I think there seems to be uh, more research needs to be done on it. What I did find that is that uh, migraines can be triggered by many different sources. And perhaps the sudden change of pressure is one of the contributing factors but I would be surprised if it's a factor on its own. Now, What's I'm going to go the on. the murder, Jeff? We're <laughs> about the murders. Yes, I don't, I'm not going to associate that solely with migraine sufferers. Um, but no, I mean, the other thing is a thing called the Chinook wind in America. And there's, again, lots and lots of anecdotal evidence that when we get a Chinook wind, people start to go a bit mad and the murder and crime rate increases. And again, I've looked at... Um, well, many documentaries on YouTube, shall we say, and there are two opinions. One, yes, it definitely does. And one side says, no, it definitely doesn't. And I'm going to I'm going to side with the no, it definitely doesn't people for the moment. But the Chinook wind's a very interesting phenomena. And it's a type of fern wind, and that's a F-O-E-H-N, which occurs pretty much anywhere you get uh, mountainous regions. What tends to happen is if you've got a range of mountains and you've got a steady wind blowing over the top of it, the air is forced up over that mountain. And as the air rises on one side of the mountain, it loses its ability to, to hold on to its moisture. And this tends to fall as rain in the UK. Manchester is a good example of this. It sits right in the foothills of the uh, Pennines. We get lots and lots of westerly winds and as the wind goes up over the Pennines it tends to drop all its moisture in the form of rain onto Manchester. So you can imagine this uh, carries on over the top of the mountain, it's now completely devoid of moisture or it's very dry indeed and then it goes down the other side of the mountain. Now as it goes down the mountain it actually compresses so if you can imagine when you pump up a, a tyre on a bike and you compress the air you can feel the warmth of the air being compressed. And this is exactly what happens on the leeward side of the mountain. The air comes down the mountain and warms up. This also gives rise to things called rotors, and there can be lots of wave elements as the air hits the ground and bounces up again. So you get very warm, very dry, very gusty winds on the leeward side of the mountain. Experienced in Europe as well, the Germans report um, effects from these sorts of winds. And you also get uh, things like uh, lenticular clouds, which are the clouds that are most spotted as UFOs. They're very, very odd looking clouds, but quite spectacular. We can also get a layer of stratus as well. It's very grey, very uh, uniform cloud. And it sits there. It's known as the uh, Chinook Arch. And this is when people start to say, oh, yes, this is uh, really affects the, the crime rate and what have you. And I'm beginning to wonder whether it's something called confirmation bias, which I think, Helen, you'd be familiar with. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether migraines and crime rates are noted when this sort of effect happens, but not noted when the effect doesn't happen. So. Yeah, it's an interesting point, Jeff. I think it's a really valid point. Definitely, there is the tendency for when someone mentions a correlation between two things that you you inevitably tend to notice it yourself. And yeah, that's what confirmation bias is all about. I did do a little bit of research myself into a crime and weather and found that there is some link between interestingly hot and humid conditions which is different to your fern wind 
which yeah, is hot and yeah. dry. Um, but hot, humid weather can evoke aggressive behaviour and violent crime does rise, but actually so does all crime. And that could be, again, we have to be careful about assuming a cause and effect from a correlation. It could just be that the opportunity is there. There's more opportunity for crime when it's dry and when the sun's out. People will leave their doors and windows open more yes, because it's yeah. warm, you know, warm. So your opportunist thieves, it's cause and effect but it's third party cause yeah. If you like. yeah, yeah and also more social interactions so people might be more likely to consume more alcohol be in mm. bigger groups all of these things probably add the other thing is as well especially in sort of snowy areas you know ski resorts that sort of thing the fern winds are known as snow eaters obviously they're warmer up to 10 degrees warmer the temperature can change so rapidly by, you know, up to 10 degrees that they melt the snow through, uh, well, just general melting and sublimation as well. So that it looks like the snow just sort of disappears. But they're also associated with the proliferation of wildfires. So if you've got a very dry, gusty wind and you've already got a dry, arid area that's uh, prone to fires or fires have already started, then these are just going to exacerbate the whole situation and some parts of uh, especially in North America they're known as the devil's wind for precisely that that reason and I do wonder whether all these negative expressions also lead to the correlation between crime and uh, yeah and what's actually going on there so um, yeah Penny you, you were going to talk about extreme weather and um, how people yes. react to that. In the UK this year on the 1st of June we introduced extreme heat into the National Severe Weather Warning Service. And you may think, well, why have we introduced it into that service? And really, we have to understand that climate change research shows that we're now more likely to see longer spells of hot weather in the UK than before. And it could become more intense. You may remember a couple of summers ago that we had the highest ever recorded UK temperature in Cambridge. I think it was 38.7 Celsius, if I remember correctly, the 25th of July 2019. I happened to be at Lord's Cricket Ground watching the cricket and it was like sitting in a hairdryer blowing hot, dry air at us continuously. Did you feel inclined to commit more crime? or? No, I felt inclined to drink more, <laughs> to be honest, Jeff. Water, of course. But I think coming back to extreme heat, I think what we have to understand with you know the potential impacts of climate change is although many of us enjoy the sunshine and the heat, we can take adequate sun protection or protect ourselves from the effect of the sun and heat by drinking lots of water or wearing sun cream or hats. And we need to understand that there are some groups of people that are more vulnerable than others. So that is why the extreme heat weather warning was introduced. And also, sadly, this summer, we also saw water safety become an issue when people sort of start to head towards the coasts and the rivers and lakes to go into the water to try and cool themselves down. I would guess the most prolific warning that we issue is for heavy rain. We can get heavy rain at any time of the year, can't we? Because if you think about it, we've got storms that bring rain, pretty heavy rain, 
through the autumn, through the winter and to the spring. And then we have heavy showers and thunderstorms that bring very localised heavy rain late spring through the summer into early autumn. So, yeah, rain is all year round. And what is really quite interesting is that, you know, flooding can cause PTSD. So that's post-traumatic stress disorder. And it can affect people in their homes, um, in their uh, properties, you know, in their businesses, not just months, but even years. And when they also, after the, you know, they experience flooding, when they hear further forecasts or new forecasts that they're going to possibly have more heavy rain, it can spark anxiety, even depression, because of what they've experienced before from that heavy rain and that flooding. Turning that around a little bit, Penny, there's something called uh, availability bias, whereby people who have recently been affected by something, and that might be flooding or any sort of severe weather event, are more likely to take action in the future, given a warning, than someone who has never experienced that or, or has but a long time ago. So that can be in some ways really helpful to us when we're trying to get people to take action, but in other ways something for us to bear in mind when we're communicating about severe weather, that people who haven't had the experience of that situation before are going to find it more difficult to imagine it happening to them. There's some evidence that when we have rain in the forecast and then it does rain, some people think that we got it wrong because they they because it's effectively bad weather or it's not the weather that they wanted. So in some ways it's very difficult for weather forecasters to win. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Mostly Weather. My thanks to panelists Helen Roberts, Penny Tranter, and Catherine Ross. The Mostly Weather podcast producer is Claire Nazir. Our editor is Adrian Holloway. I'm Jeff Norwood-Brown. Do join us again next time we delve into the weird and wonderful world of weather. Mostly Weather is a podcast by the UK Met Office.